0: Hey, let's open our Bibles tonight to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. We're going to be finishing up the reign of Hezekiah, one of Israel's uh, greatest kings. And when I say Israel, uh, let me define that. Uh, Judah, Judah and Benjamin and the southern two tribes, one of the best kings, uh, arguably, that uh, Judah had ever had. Uh, Other than Josiah and maybe David, and Partially Solomon, uh, Hezekiah ranks up there with the very top of the top, and, and it's really because of the man's heart for God. He, he was not one of those who turned aside to God. He was always, uh, and he had a horrible father, as, as we looked at last week. It's really uncommon to have a a young man to have a very poor example of a father, and then turn out to be really uh, a really good man. And that goes to show you that it doesn't matter whether you came. It doesn't matter your environment. It doesn't matter your upbringing, your parents, who they were, who they weren't. God can get a hold of you, and and such is the case with me. You know, I, I didn't come from a religious background. I, I really. Uh, I, I would like to say that I was a mutt. I just I didn't have any kind of. I just came out of nowhere, and but I knew God loved me, and uh, and that was enough for me, you know. And I I had my time in the world, and I'm glad those days are behind me. I never want to look back on them again, other than to be glad that I've forgotten about it, you know, as much as I can. And I know God has because it's all under the blood. But Hezekiah was just just wonderful man, and. The unfortunate thing as we're going on in the book of 2 Kings, as we're coming to the end of it, actually, very close to the end, I want you to see a pattern here in these last four kings, roughly the last four kings, significant kings. You know, we had Ahaz, horrible king. Hezekiah, wonderful king. Manasseh, his son, horrible king. Josiah, exemplary king. And then at that point, Judah starts to flatline, meaning that their leaders, after that, it goes rapidly downhill. They do not recover. They're led into captivity into Babylon. And you know, as I look at the history of Israel, I see our country very similar to that. You know, there were times in our country where you know, things are going well, and then it's kind of like this ebb and flow, but we're on this... Um, course right now that is not good at all folks and and it it ought to stir within us the church we can't expect the world to do this it has to begin with us and and what i mean by that is our fervor and our, our desire for the for the lord and for um to be obedient to him and to be willing to be used by him never get tired of being exhorted in that way because um i need to come out of my slumber has anybody felt like they're in a slumber at times and I think that uh, for each of us, it comes and it goes throughout our, our life as Christians. There's times where you feel like you're on the mountaintop and then you go through this dry period, this desert time when it feels like God is not doing anything. And, and maybe it's at that time, God is revealing to you the things that really aren't in you, that should be in you because of the time that you've spent with him. And it brings things to the surface, doesn't it? It brings things to the surface, and we have a decision to make. And I think we have one of those defining moments before us right now as the church of God, the real true church of Jesus Christ, for us to really rise to the occasion unlike any other time. And Hezekiah was one of these men, and we're going to see that Josiah is going to be one of those men. And it was them. See the difference one person can make. And yes, they were kings and they had a lot of influence. But one person can make a lot of difference. And all it takes is one person... To say I am going to break this chain of whatever it is. I'm going to break this chain of violence. I'm going to break this chain of abuse, uh, whatever it is. Oh, it could be physical abuse. Maybe you were abused as a child, and maybe you're tempted now as an adult to lash out like you had been lashed, like it's been done to you. And, and these things happen, and you have to resist those things, and you have to move on. But we have to move on, and we have to do better. We have to keep our focus on Christ and allow him to work it into our lives. Don't ever lose sight of that. And so I hope that these chapters that we're looking at will somehow resonate in your heart as it is in mine because, again, we have a great moment in history before us right now. And it's time that we do it, church. It's time like any other time before. Now is the time that we need to really get serious, to really get serious in our walk with him, and to push aside all the stuff that, 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 that doesn't really help us. And, and Hezekiah, excuse me. Hezekiah was one of these kings. When he came in, his father had made Israel a mess, had made Jerusalem a mess. Altars everywhere, blatant idolatry everywhere. And his son... Now comes into power, and he cleans house. He literally cleans the whole thing up, and he pushes it all aside, burns it, gets rid of it. And it's a wonderful time of reunion. They had a Passover during uh, Hezekiah's time that was incredible. Actually, I'm thinking about Josiah. Actually, and, and they had a, 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 and actually Hezekiah as well. They had wonderful Passovers at that time that they've been ignoring for years. A time of revival. And so tonight, as we look at chapter 20, we're going to finish the life and the, the reign of Hezekiah this evening, but I would have you look at chapter 20. We're going to um, look at just that chapter, but I want you to go, I want you to back up two chapters to chapter 18, because we, we already went through this a couple weeks ago, but I want to help you understand um, where we are at chronologically. Um, I, I like chronologies. Um, I do it in the Gospels, and, and there's uh, some really great resources that um, put these, the Samuel and, and uh, Kings and Chronicles, they put them in order chronologically, and I find that really helpful because you, you get to see the, 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 the history and what, what, what led to one thing and what happened before it. You follow me? And sometimes that, that can really help you, and it paints the picture better than just a bunch of scattered events It helps me put it into place uh, in history. And that's really important to do. And that's what I'm hoping to attempt to do tonight, partly. um, If you look with me in the beginning of chapter 18, remember that it it begins Hezekiah's uh, reign. And and God just basically um, sharing all the wonderful things that he did and how he was delivering the people from idolatry. And he even rebelled against the king of Assyria, who he was supposed to pay tithe or pay the tribute to. He cut that off. He was doing all the right things. and then in uh verses nine through twelve, remember it was really a uh those uh, four verses, nine through twelve, were really just a recapitulation of what had happened to the northern ten tribes, meaning they're going into captivity into Assyria. But then we come into verse thirteen, and it starts off in the fourteenth year. Of of King Hezekiah. And from verses 13 down through uh, 16 is the first invasion of Sennacherib. Those verses comprise the very first invasion. Sennacherib's going to come against Jerusalem two times. This is the first one. And it was around 701 BC, if you remember. And uh, he came against Jerusalem. And, uh, and when he did, remember, uh, Hezekiah basically gave him all of the gold and all the silver, all the treasuries in, in fear uh, because of this formidable foe that was coming against him. So he gives everything away, all the gold and all the silver. And, um, and then immediately after that, we have verse 17. But between verses 16 and verses 17... There's about a 14-year lapse, 14-year time period. The chapter that we're looking at tonight, chapter 20, specifically verses 1 through 19, and you'll understand why I didn't include the last verse in a little while, but 20, chapter 20, verses 1 through 19, it fits right in here between verses 16 and 17 of chapter 18. Okay, So just like the Gospels, kings uh, is not necessarily chronological. There's some pieces that are moved around for different reasons. But I want you to see this because, so immediately after from verses 13 through 16 in chapter 18, we have this first invasion around 701 BC of Sennacherib. And Hezekiah gives everything away, basically, all the gold and all the silver. And and then um, we're going to read Um, then we're going to look at chapters 20, which I just mentioned, verses 1 through 19. And then right after that, after the events of chapter 20, verses 1 through 19, then resumes what happens in verse 17 of chapter 18. (laughs) Everybody follow me? So, um, in in fact, verses 17 through uh, 35, 36, uh, actually down through chapter 19, all the way down to around uh, verse 36 is really the second invasion of Sennacherib, okay? And so the part we're going to look at tonight is in between verses 16 and 17 of chapter 18, okay? And so just chronologically, that's where it lies. Now, there's a reason that I bring this up, not only just so that you can understand it, but I almost wonder if there's something in this. So let's rehash and just read through Uh, In chapter 18, let's read through verses 13 through 16, and then I'm going to skip right over into chapter 20, where where naturally it would go, and I think you'll see something really interesting, perhaps. And I, I think there's some interesting things here. So notice in verse 13 of chapter 18, again, the first invasion of Sennacherib. It says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, which is 701 B.C., Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them, and then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, "I have done wrong, turn away from me, whatever you impose on me, I will pay." Now this is kind of interesting, don't you think? Because this is a man whom the Lord has said there's nobody like him who came before him and there's nobody coming after him that's like him. I mean, God did say this about Josiah, don't get me wrong, but basically what he's saying is this guy is really amazing. Compared to everybody else, he's an amazing guy. So did he have his chinks in his armor? Yes, he did. Did he have weaknesses? He did. Was he an idolater? No. <laughs> Not Hezekiah. He had his problems. And I want to ask you tonight as a believer, as a, as a Christian, don't we all have problems? Granted, I don't want to excuse my problems or my sin issues or whatever it is. I don't want to just say, you know, pretend it doesn't happen. No, I want to hit it square on. I want to deal with it, and I want to repent. I want to be I want to be better for Jesus. I want to be good for him because he saved my soul. I want to be an ambassador for him, right? And as a result of that, I want to do all that I can. I want to do all that I can. And yet he would do this. It's kind of interesting. Again, not a perfect man. He says, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold, which is about $66.3 million as of the price of gold and silver a few weeks ago. All right, that's how much money he gave him. So that's quite a bit. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah even stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord, which he had put there, and uh, and, and from the pillars, which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now remember what has just happened. The first invasion comes, the king of Assyria. He basically is frightened, naturally so. Because it was that same group that took the northern ten tribes captive. Remember that. Now turn over to chapter 20 now, because this is chronologically what happens next. And let's just read through chapter 20, uh, uh, down to verse 19, and then we'll go back and take a look at some of these things. Notice it says, in those days Hezekiah was sick. And near death. So after this invasion, after he gave all the gold and the silver away, he came down with something uh, that was going to be life threatening to him. And he was near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he returned his face toward the wall and he prayed to the Lord. And I love this. Notice his heart. He says, I pray how, remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart. And he was telling the truth. He, he wasn't a perfect man, but he had a loyal heart toward God. He had a moment of fear, yes. And we're going to see tonight that he had a moment of pride and being lifted up in pride. But other than that, the guy has nothing other than just devotion to Jesus. I have walked before you in truth, God, and with a loyal heart, and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened, before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, that the word of God came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father. I love that. Underline that. There's a reason he put that there. I have heard your prayer, God says. I have seen your tears, and surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Notice, I will defend this city, Jerusalem, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David, the the, the head, the progenitor of the dynasty of Judah, and then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. And so they took and laid on, on, on the boil, and he recovered. So evidently, he had some kind of boil that was life-threatening. Don't know where that boil was. It could have been on his neck, his throat. His, we have no idea. It could have been on his stomach. The Bible doesn't tell us, and I'm really glad it doesn't. So they laid the figs, the clump of figs, on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I will go up to the house of the Lord the third day? And then Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing which which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward. Notice, he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward. The shadow he brought back 10 degrees. By which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So at that time, Beredek Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, this was way before Nebuchadnezzar came on the scene. He sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah was attentive to them. It tells us in Chronicles that uh, he sent uh, this Meredith Baladin from the king of Babylon at the time. He sent a, an, an, a, a couple of ambassadors to Hezekiah with a gift saying, I'm really glad that you're recovered, and, and, uh, and there's a reason for this. And he showed them, notice, Hezekiah was attentive to them, and he showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all his armory. Does that sound like a good thing to do? Not really, because we know the end of the story, right? <laughs> and uh, Actually, I shouldn't say story. I, I use that word figuratively, but I don't, I'm not a person who believes that the Bible is stories. It's history. It's real history. Okay, So that's really important to know. So he showed him the silver, the gold, the spices, precious ointment, all of his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all of his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. He basically rolled out the red carpet, opened the doors, and lit the lights and had hors d'oeuvres and showed them all the very best of everything. Then Hezekiah, the prophet, went to King Hezekiah and said to him, he says, what did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, they came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And so Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that's in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. And whenever you have a prophet saying to you, hear the word of the Lord, it's usually corrective. (laughs) It's usually not something like, hear the word of the Lord. You really are just the best, man. You are just incredible, guy. You know, can I get your autograph on this parchment? You know, the uh, whenever a prophet says that, you be starting to already start to genuflect. You know, get on your knees and and bow and and and, and get in that position because what's coming is not. You're not going to like it. So, <laughs> Isaiah said to Hezekiah, "Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming. The days are coming, Hezekiah." When all that is in your house and, all, and what your fathers have accumulated until this day, it shall be carried to Babylon. Notice, it shall. It's not even if. It's, it's, it's going to happen. And that's kind of discouraging. He gave me 15 more years to live and I, I make a mess of that too. My guard came down. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take, some, take away some of your sons who will descend from you. We'll look at that. Whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? So he just kind of like, you know what? The Lord's given me 15 years. It's gonna happen after my time. Praise the Lord, I don't have to worry about it. I don't know if that was his heart completely, but there is a little bit of cavalierness to this that leads me to believe that uh, Hezekiah was very glad that, um, that this was going to happen uh, after his time. So let's go back into verse 1 here. And it says, In those days he was sick and near death. Yeah. And the, and the prophet came to him, prophet Isaiah, and basically says, Get your house in order. You know, you shall die and not live. How would you like somebody coming to you and saying that? Get your last will and testament in order. You're going to die. Well, thank you very much. That was awfully encouraging, brother. Thank you. You know, and, uh, you know, sometimes the Lord has hard things to say. And I can't help, because this is right on the heels of what we read in that first invasion. Remember back in chapter 18, verses 13 through 16? that we read, that first invasion? Well, what we're reading now happened immediately after that. I can't help but wonder, and we got to be careful here. I'm going to forward that with this. We have to be careful when we think like this, because it's not always the case. But is it probable? It is probable. Because right before this, he had given, responding in fear, and there's no mention of him praying to God at that time. He just saw Assyria coming, knowing that the northern ten tribes have already been blown away, they've been taken away, and so he just starts giving stuff away. I wonder what would have happened if Hezekiah would have went before the Lord and says, Lord, what do I do about this? I know the Lord would have had words for him of wisdom, and God could have done a great thing for him. So I can't help but wonder if this sickness... I wonder, I just. I wonder if there was some kind of punitive measure here that God was giving to Hezekiah um, because he so readily gave in to Sennacherib's demands. I don't know. But unless it's explicitly stated in the Scripture, we should never jump to those kind of conclusions always. We should never do that. However, there are, t- you know, for instance, there's times, like, and remember in John's Gospel, um, in John chapter 9, A man was born blind, and it says as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was born blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? Obviously he sinned, he's born blind, somebody messed up, right? That's the traditional thought of sin, or things that happen to us. It's got to be the result, well, you know, it is, but was it directly because of this man's sin, or did his parents sin that this man was born blind? And I love Jesus' response. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. It doesn't mean that they didn't sin, but it wasn't the cause of this man's blindness. Follow me? Of course they were sinners, but it wasn't because of the sin. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And Jesus would heal him, and this man would be very vocal about Christ. And it was a miracle, no doubt. We can't can't always assume, but it is possible because only after this illness do we see Hezekiah humbled and do we see him praying. And, and, um, and in uh, Second Chronicles chapter 32, which is the parallel chapter to this section that we're looking at tonight, um, it says that uh, Hezekiah was sick and near death and he prayed to the Lord and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. And we're, and we're going to find out what that sign is. We, we've already looked at it, actually, but we'll get there. So notice in verse 2, it says, in our text, it says, Then he turned his face toward the wall, and he prayed to the Lord. And here we find him after he's been wounded, mortally wounded. He's, he's on his deathbed. If God didn't intervene, the man would have died. He told Isaiah to go in and tell him, You better get your plans in order, because you're going to die. But notice his humility and his brokenness now. And You know, this is such an irresistible thing for God. I hope you can see that tonight. Notice, he turned his face toward the wall and he prayed. And, and, and as he's praying, and it's written for us what he said here, and think about this, how God it must have just wooed his heart. Because Hezekiah knew he wasn't a perfect man, but he also knew he, his heart was sold out for God. It was sold out for God. He says, remember now, O Lord, and he's facing the wall with this you know, boil and, and thinking he's, he's on his way out. You know, I'm going to die. I pray how I, have, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart. And he was being truthful. And I've done what was good in your sight, Lord. And Isaiah, or Hezekiah, excuse me, he wept bitterly. So these things are true of him. And remember... The commendation that God gave to him. These weren't empty words. God said this himself in Second Kings 18, verse 5. We, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. This is what God said about this man. He says, After him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Before him or after him? For him to die at such a relatively young age as well, there is little doubt that he was also thinking of the proverb that Solomon had written, which is Proverbs 10, verse 27. What does that say? The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. So Hezekiah, being a young man, now terminally ill, God telling the prophet to tell him he's going to die, he's thinking, Lord, I, I, I know I've done right. This doesn't make sense. I shouldn't be dying this young. And maybe Hezekiah is thinking about that proverb. Lord, have I, have I have I, done well? I believe I've followed you with all my heart, Lord. You know, sometimes when we go through difficulties, we don't understand why. And you may even question God. You may even have the same heart where you know you haven't done anything blatantly, obviously wrong. And yet something really horrible happens to you. And, and, and we immediately think, well, it's because of what I did yesterday. You know, I, you know, I stepped on that ant when I crossed the road and, and the poor little guy looked all fat and he looked happy and he was even smiling, he had a little breadcrumb. You know, I mean, and, and you're thinking really strange thoughts and you don't realize that sometimes things just happen. Sometimes things just happen to you. And is God mad at you? Maybe not, maybe not at all. Or is he chastening you? That's probably a better uh, term. Is he chastening you? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But don't assume that it's always that. Sometimes it's just to bring me closer to him. And there's no other way around it. Sometimes. And it happened, verse 4, before Isaiah had gone out in the middle of the court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah. Notice, the leader of my people. Notice how God referred to Hezekiah. The leader. Literally in the Hebrew, it's nagid. Does that sound familiar to you? Nagid is a a term that is endearing to a, a Jewish person. You're the leader of my people, Hezekiah. I love you. Thus says the Lord, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader, the nagid of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of your David, your father. We'll look at that. Underline David, your father. He says, I've heard your prayer. Aren't you glad that God hears prayer? Has he heard your prayer? Do you think God's not listening? He's listening. When you don't think he's listening, he's listening. So often we get so despondent and we get so discouraged by what we've done or the things that we thought or whatever it is, and we we don't think God is listening. In fact, you're sitting in your car and you're praying and the devil's whispering in your ears all the time you're praying. He's not listening to you, you hypocrite. He's not listening to you. Listen, don't follow the the thoughts of your heart. Don't listen to the thoughts of your heart. And sometimes my heart betrays me and the devil wants to certainly encourage those evil thoughts. Sometimes he's the one doing it. Sometimes it's just me, and he's going, yeah, that is true about you. He's just going to come in and pile on the, the, the condemnation. Not the conviction, the condemnation. Do you know the difference between conviction and condemnation? Condemnation is to rub your nose at it and tell you that your God is done with you because of what you've done. And if, if that happens, then that is the work of the enemy. When somebody rubs your nose and says, God is so upset with you. I can't believe it. You know, you probably should just leave the church. You've done this too many times. You're finished. That's condemnation. Conviction sometimes comes with chastisement, chastening you. It's not exciting, but God is wooing you. He's not, con- He's not condemning you. He's convicting you. Yes, the feeling is your heart is broken. You know you feel guilty. And you are guilty. And what do you do with that? Do you run? Or do you get on your knees and pray? If you get on your knees and pray, pray that is a proper way to handle conviction. Because conviction is good. I love when God convicts me because I can be a little too cavalier and a little blase about sin in my own life and I need him to hold me accountable. Pray that God will give you that conviction when you go astray. And if you do, you know you're being treated by a loving Heavenly Father. If I'm getting away with it and seemingly no brakes are on and I I, I see no restrictions in my life, I start to worry I want the word of God to zap me every time that I'm doing something really wrong or when my heart gets bitter and cold. It shouldn't be something we shrink away from. But notice the encouragement that the Lord gave to this hurting man. He knew he was doing the right thing. And now I've got, I'm young and I still, I've got this boil and you tell me I'm going to die. Notice also how even in his, the struggle of his, the Lord still saw Hezekiah as the leader of his people. And Samuel remember when God spoke to Samuel and says now go and anoint Samuel you shall anoint him commander and the word is nagid commander same word in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, as the Lord is talking about this 70-week prophecy of Daniel. What does he say in verse 25 of Daniel 9? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, the Mashiach Nagid. Same word here, the commander of my people. And here it's speaking of Jesus. And now he's using that same word to say, go tell the Nagid of my people. Go tell Hezekiah. What encouragement that must be. And and then, you know, it even gets better than that. And it's as if the Lord found his sincerity and his humility irresistible. I mean, think about it. God could have just told Isaiah the prophet just to go home. But as he's leaving the king's presence, the king is crying his eyes out, pouring his heart out in true repentance, in true seeking God. And God says, wait a minute, Isaiah, I can't. My heart can't let you take another step. You need to go back in him and give him a message for me. And see, God hasn't changed. He's the same for you and I. When we, when we, when we take a, a baby step toward him, he's running to us. He wants to bless. He wants to encourage your heart. He doesn't want to condemn you. Yes, there are things that we do wrong, and yes, we do need to turn from them. Yes, all those things are true, but he wants to bring you to himself. And so I love the scripture in Isaiah 42, verse 3, where it says, A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. And Hezekiah was like a bruised reed. It should be standing up straight, but he's just feeling so overwhelmed by his sickness and, and wondering. And, and Lord, I've done all these good things and he's a, he's a bruised reed. There's just a little bit of an ember left. He's like a smoking flax and you have to come and and you wave your hand trying to blow that thing, hoping a spark will take off and then a small little flame and then you add some stuff to the pile and there's a fire. You see that when you go camping, don't you? Unless you're like me and I get one of those little sticks that you just throw it underneath there and you light it and walk away and then you got a fire. Hallelujah. But uh, (laughs) a smoking flax he will not quench. And what does it say in James? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. But first, the way is down and then he lifts you up. Not the other way around. I don't go up. If I go up, he's going to bring me down. But if I am down... He's going to lift me up. And that's exactly what he did to to Hezekiah. Notice what he says here in verse 5. Return and tell Hezekiah, Isaiah, the leader of my people. And notice, the God of David, your father. Notice that God hears our prayers despite what we think or feel. But notice that the Lord addressed himself to Hezekiah as the God of your father, David. Underline that because that's really significant. Because it was a means to remind him, to remind Hezekiah in this dark period of his life where he wasn't sure he was going to make it. From his point of view, he was going out. And God says, go tell the commander of my people, the God, the father of your father, the God of your father, David, why David? Why did he say that phrase? Turn with me to 2nd Samuel chapter 7. This is a, a an area in the scripture that I love to go to and it's one that you'll probably remember for the rest of your life because I visit it so much. It's the Davidic covenant. You can write the reference down if you want. I'm going to read it to you right now. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 through 16. It's the Davidic covenant. And God is reminding Hezekiah in this dark hour of his life, thinking that he's on his way out, God reminds him, I am the God of your father David, Hezekiah. Don't forget that. Because what did God say to David when he became king? When David wanted to build God a house, God says, David, you can't build me a house. Your hands are filled with blood. Your son Solomon, he's going to build a house, but not you. But because it was right in your heart, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you a house, David. And he goes and he says in verse 8, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, God says to David, from following the sheep to be ruler, there it is, over my people over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them. Now think of how this would feel. I mean, I wonder if Hezekiah, as he's hearing this God say, I'm the God of your father, David, I can't help but wonder if Hezekiah was remembering that covenant that God made to David, that was going to go through him as well. And I think that's a good thing. Don't be discouraged, Hezekiah. I'm the God of your father, David. Do you remember what I told David? And we're reading it right now. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Yes, it's speaking of Christ in the long haul, but in the mid haul, it's speaking of all these different kings, including Hezekiah, who was young and near death at this moment. He shall build me a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Hezekiah, the line that you're in, is going to extend on forever. Remember that. And I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. That didn't appeal, you know, uh, anyway, so, but my mercy, notice verse 15, shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established. How sure is God? Did he say might? I, I don't know. You know, your kingdom might go on, I don't know, but you're not really a good boy today. You're really not, I just don't think, did you tie this week? Did you help the elderly woman across the street? Did you help Virginia Root put her groceries away? If not, I don't know. I don't know. It might happen, but it doesn't look so good. Is that the way God is? No, he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be established. That is God's unmerited favor. It shall be established forever. Your throne shall be established forever. He repeats it like three times. Don't forget this, Hezekiah. And, you know, isn't it true that when you're going through difficult times, like that's when you need that encouragement. And God was going to make sure. And I think just by saying the phrase, I'm the God of your father, David. He could have said, I'm the God of your father, Ahaz. (laughs) No, he said, I'm the God of your father, David. It's to David that I gave that covenant all the way through, even Ahaz to you, and it's going to go on and it's ultimately going to be into Christ." It's going to be speaking of Christ. So, verse 6 And I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you, notice, and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Notice what the Lord did here. He gave him the promise of 15 more years. I mean, there is a blessing, certainly, of having more life to live, especially when you know God has given you 15 years. See, I don't even know what tomorrow holds. I don't know that I have tomorrow. I could die in my sleep tonight. But if God says you're going to have 15 years, you're going to have 15 years. And he did. He had 15 years. God held Hezekiah's breath in his hand just like he does us. He gave him his end date. Now, most people never have that. They don't have, they don't know their terminus. They don't know when their end is. And this, to me, is a blessing and a curse, because what would you do with those 15 years? Think about that. If God told you tonight, you got 15 years, what are you going to do with those 15 years? Oh, my goodness. It'd be one thing if the Lord told me I had three weeks to live, but I got 15 years? Hmm, what would I do? What would you do? You know, pharmaceutical companies, they make these products to make you look younger, make you have younger skin, removing wrinkles, sagging skin under the eyes and chin. People are clamoring to do anything to live longer, to look younger. And God says, you got 15 years, Isaiah. And also he told him, he says, that he would deliver him, notice, I'm going to deliver you from the king of Assyria and the city of Jerusalem. Those two things, that's really encouraging. And why was God doing it? Was he doing it because Hezekiah was such an exemplary character? He was a great man. But notice what God says. I'm doing this for my own sake and for my servant David, for the promises that we've read tonight. I'm doing it for his sake as well. And I'm doing it through him, to you, and onward. Again, because of the covenant that God had made to David. See, God is serious about promises. And he will keep his promises even though we don't most of the time. And we have to remember, it is about Jesus Christ. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus, right? I'm so glad. Doesn't that remove, doesn't that take all the angst out of you when, it, when it's all about him? and it's not about me, then, and and God's not worried about your performance, just relax. Just be who God made you to be and relax and enjoy him. And if you can do that, you can be more of a witness than if you're all tied up in knots going, I gotta do something, I gotta go witness, I gotta go lay this track down on the table, I gotta, you know, and you're, you're sweating bullets, trying to make something happen, trying to do things to prove to somebody, to God, to the church, to the pastor, that I'm really all that. And God's going, just relax. Just relax relax he gives his beloved sleep oh (laughs) don't you love sleep at this time of the night everyone's going yeah hurry up will ya? I do I love naps I love to sleep it's one of my favorite things one of my favorite sports because I roll over a lot so I think of it as a sport it's a sport But God gives this promise, and notice, and then he gives him another promise. On the third day, that he would go up to the house of the Lord. Are you kidding me? I can't even get out of bed. No, in three days, you're going to rise and you're going to go to the house of the Lord. That means that he's going to be well enough in three days to go do it. Then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So they took a lump of figs, laid it on the boil, and notice, and he recovered. Now, I don't know if there is anything intrinsic about the lump of figs, that it had something in it to, to do the job. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. It could be one of those things where it was just a point of contact, something to do that would, uh, you know, And figs we know is about Israel, and, you know, there's something symbolic maybe to that. And But, you know, it, it probably had nothing to do with the figs themselves. Maybe there was a chemical in it. Maybe I don't know. Maybe God whispered into Isaiah's ear, you know grab a lump of figs and put them together, and like a poultice, you know, put it on his boil, and who knows? It doesn't really matter. God could have done it without it, couldn't he? He could have, right? He could have just spoke, and the thing would have vanished, and everybody's jaw would hit the ground. He could have done that. But notice in verse 8, that Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what is the sign? Now, this is kind of interesting. After all that, you know, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I will go up to the house of the Lord on the third day. This word sign literally means miracle. What is the evidence? What is the token? And this is the very same word that we see in Matthew's gospel. In the Greek, it's the same kind of word. When, you remember when we just looked at this a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning, where the Pharisees and the scribes says, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. It's the same thing. What will you show us? What miracle will you show us? What token? And then Isaiah said to him, this is the sign from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing, notice, which he has spoken to you. Do you notice the difference? Remember, we've talked about this, that God does miracles um, not just for fun. He he does miracles to confirm what he has spoken, that what he has spoken is true. Therefore, he does something as like a a, a sign to prove that what I said is going to come to pass. It's never the other way around. It's always God's word and then the miracle or the token or something that encourages my faith. You see it throughout the Bible. And Hezekiah answered, It's an easy thing for the shatter to go down 10 degrees because that's normal. That's just That happens every day. No big deal for it to go forward, but... Uh, and, but but for the shadow to go down 10 degrees, and th- this word degrees literally means steps. Um, in the NIV for this very verse, it says that um, the prophet Isaiah called to the Lord and the Lord made a shadow go back and the 10 steps or the, the uh, steps, it, it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So evidently Ahaz had made this stairway probably next to his house or something. And depending on where the sun went on the day, Probably it would be like a clock for us. Like on the seventh step, maybe it'd be seven in the morning. On the twelfth step, it'd be, you know, whatever. You kind of get the idea. So they were figuring it out, and I, uh, Hezekiah, or Ahaz, excuse me, made this sundial or this uh, steps that would show the sunlight at certain times in the day. So Isaiah the prophet, verse 11, cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow to. Notice, he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial or the stairway of Ahaz. Notice that the shadow came back 10 degrees. It doesn't say the sun itself did. Now, could God do that? Could God make the sun? Yes, he could. And it's very possible he did. And I'm not offering any solutions. If you know, But it, it's, it is interesting how it says the shadow. He brought the shadow back. Now, God, who made uh, the, all the laws of the universe and set everything in motion, can he pull back something and let it go again and, and it'll keep going? I mean, he could do that. Is it possible that somehow he refracted that light by another heavenly body at the, at, just at that moment to come and intercede for it and it would reflect and do something unique? He could have done that too. I kind of like the bigger thing myself. I don't really care how he did it. And there's been a lot of debate. No, you, know, you can get into all that, and people argue about stuff like that. I don't. I'm like, whether it's the shadow or the sun makes no difference. Either way, he did it. <laughs> Either way, he did it. God did a similar thing in Joshua's life. In Joshua chapter 10, he, he allowed the day to go extended much, much, much longer. And what did God do there? It just says that he stopped the sun and the moon and it halted. So, can he do it? I think he can. I think he's big enough to do it. If he's able to speak and it comes into existence, I think even in the natural laws of order, he can, if he so chooses, he can do something that would normally cause chaos in the universe. And he has the ability to fix it in real time at the moment. Just like that. How big is your God? I think he's that big because if he can speak and something comes in if I said Lord a cheeseburger right now would be really nice a big fat one with cheese on it right here and all of a sudden a plate appeared and then I'm waiting for the the cheeseburger to show up and God will go psych (laughs) not going to bring you that no so you get the idea I think he's big Now, remember that God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. Now, between verses 11 and 12, and I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to. Between verses 11 and 12 um, is what could be called Hezekiah's lament and his praise. It's not recorded for us here in 2 Kings chapter 20, but it is recorded in Isaiah chapter 38, specifically verses 9 through 20. And I'd like to read that, just read it to you, because this is the lament at this point in time where Hezekiah is pouring out his heart to God. Again, it's not in, recorded here, but it is recorded in Isaiah chapter 38, 9 through 20. And this is what it is. This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. He said, in the, I, I said, in I, uh, Hezekiah speaking, I said, I'm in the prime of my life. I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I'm deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah or Yahweh, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall observe no more, no man, no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, Take from me like a sh- taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. From day unto night you make an end of me, and I have considered uh, until morning, uh, I have considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day unto night you make an end of me. It sounds very similar to David's lament, but here Hezekiah is pouring out his heart to God what he felt when he was on, on the verge of death. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me, and here's where things turn around, and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and, all, and in all these things is the life of my spirit, so you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Never forget that verse, saints. If Hezekiah can say that, when God forgives you, what does he do? He chooses to never look on it again. You're gonna always think about what you've done, perhaps, but I would encourage you to forget it as quickly as God forgets it because when it is under the blood of Christ, he's never gonna go look back and go, remember what you did three weeks ago? I can't believe what you did. You remember that horrible thing you did and the thing you thought? If it's under the blood, he's gonna go, I don't know what, what, what did you do last week? what did you do three weeks ago? And the devil's going, I'll tell you. He goes, shut up. I chose to forget it. Why? Because the blood of Christ covers it. And when the blood of Christ covers it, God forbid that any of us should go and look at it again. If you're struggling tonight over something that you've never forgiven, God has forgiven you, but you haven't forgiven yourself, get over that. (laughs) Let God heal you of that. And move on. Don't let your growth of your own walk with Him be stunted, overthinking, you know, your thoughts. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, He will. Therefore, we will sing songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. I love that. Now I'm going to move quickly. Now as we get through, now we're um, we're going on to verse twelve here. And it says, at that time, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, he sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Now, Baradak Baladan was king of Babylon uh, on two different occasions. The first one was in 722 to 710 BC, and his second stint was in 703 to 702 BC. And Sargon, remember we talked about him, he was um, the one who was probably the one who led the northern captivity uh, after Shalmaneser died in 705. It was probably Sargon, his son, who actually took the children of Israel into uh, Assyria. But um, Sargon II dethroned Beredek Baladin around 710 BC. And um, and thus, and, and the purpose of this visit of Beredec Baladin was evidently to make an alliance with Hezekiah against Assyria because Assyria at this time was the leading empire and Babylon was being was intimidated by Assyria as well so now that Assyria is coming down to Hezekiah and threatening so now comes so an ambassadorship down to Hezekiah seeking maybe to form perhaps an alliance and this explains why we see what happens next and Hezekiah was attentive to them he saw them and he knew they weren't enemies at the time so he's thinking to himself well these guys really want what we want we want to get assyria off of our off of our backs and so Hezekiah showed him all the house of his treasures the gold the silver spices precious ointment everything Verse 14, Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say to you, and from where did they come? And he said, From Babylon. And what have have they seen of your house And Hezekiah? They've seen everything. There's nothing among my treasures that I haven't shown them. And, And this was very naive of Hezekiah, because in thinking that he might have an ally in Babylon, he was actually allowing their future captors to case his kingdom. You've seen what a thief does before he breaks into a bank? He probably goes in there several times, looking at everything, looking at where the cameras are, finding out everything, finding out when this guard comes on duty. He's casing the place, and this is what these guys were doing. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. <laughs> I don't know if I want to hear that. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house. What your fathers have accumulated unto this day, all of it shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you. Notice that. Whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. No doubt this is a reference to, at the very least, Daniel. Daniel and his three comrades. And it also includes Ezekiel because we know there were three deportments of Jews when, he- when Babylon finally did come against Israel, Jerusalem. In 606, he came and he took 10,000 captive. And among though, that first deportment was Daniel and his three fellows and the very best of Judah, including, we believe, Ezekiel. Actually, I know he got carried captive, but whether he's first, second, or third deportment, I don't really know. So, verse 19, so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word which the Lord said is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth, at least in my days? (laughs) In other words, I'm probably not going to have to worry about this, but I accept the punishment. I'm sorry (laughs) for those of you who are down in history that I haven't, the kids that I haven't even begat yet. I'm sorry that because of my disobedience, you're going to be the recipients and do you realize how choices are important the choices that you make are important aren't they the choices that we make so it is at this point immediately after this cuz remember i told you that second kings 20 verses 1 through 19 fit right in between Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 18, right? So all of this happens. And then, what happens after what we just read? The second and final invasion of Sennacherib against Jerusalem. And we read about that last week in chapter 19. We read about that, how Sennacherib taunted Israel and taunted Judah told them your God is nothing, your people are nothing. We'll give you money, we'll even give you horses if you can find ten, you know, find enough men to ride them and, and, and do battle with us. So finally, after all of that, we see finally Hezekiah. It says in verse 20, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might... And how he had made a pool, notice this, a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Well, funny you should ask, because it is. We've read some of it tonight. In Second Chronicles 32, verse 1 through 4, what does it say? After the, these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah, and this was his second time, and he encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And when Hezekiah saw Sennacherib come, that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brooks that ran through the land, saying, why should the king of Assyria here you come and find much water. And then in verse 30 of 2 Chronicles 32, it says this This same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet, stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon, and brought literally straight the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. So what happened was Zion remembers this little sliver of land just to the south of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is here, and then right south of that, there's this little sliver of land. And so what they did is they stopped up the waters on the east side, because this is the Kidron Valley, and over here is the Mount of Olives. And so they stopped up this water, and they brought it inward, and they built a tunnel, and that tunnel went straight over to the Pool of Siloam, which is on the western side of the city of David, or Zion, this little sliver of land. So about 1,500 feet straight, they did this. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. You guys went to it recently, didn't you? Right. Yeah. But they, they, they had these men, and it was a tunnel that Hezekiah, his men, had cut through from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam, which is still there today. We visit the Pool of Siloam. Most of it's covered with dirt, and the, the Roman Catholic Church has bought all the land and they won't uncover it. And so they, um, they but some of it is exposed. Maybe, is it all exposed now? They're doing work. They're, they're, they must have got the permission, so they're going to get all that. It'd be a great tourist spot, and so they're, you know, whatever. So anyway, so it was a very. Uh, <laughs> they uh, and so there's a Siloam inscription, and I, I just want to mention this to you because this is really an amazing thing that happened. There was an inscription uh, that was discovered in 1880 along the the southern part of down by the pool of Siloam, about 19 feet inward. There was an inscription. That the the builders, when they were building this, way back at this time, some twenty five, twenty seven hundred 2,700 years ago, they wrote in Hebrew on the side of the wall. They chiseled it in there. And, um, and what they did is, uh, and it describes the engineering feat that it was for these men digging with hammers and pickaxes, how they met... In the middle, and 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 so they they built a straight thing, and certainly it meandered, but they met in the middle. And think of how hard that is back in those days to get on two sides of rock and then be digging and come and get to the same point in the middle. And that's what they did. And the original stone, the Siloam inscription, is they have a um, it's a uh, uh, what do they call it? It's a it's, it's, a, it's a fake that they have there. Now, what do they call that? Um, oh, yes, thank you for the term. Yes, they have a replica there now, but the original one is, guess where? The original Siloam inscription, somebody carved out of the wall, and now it's in a, um, a Turkish museum in the Istanbul Archaeological Museum, Archaeology Museum, and they won't give it back to Israel. <laughs> Even to this day, they've made attempts to get it back, and they haven't gotten it back. So there's a, a replica there on the wall. It looks exactly like it was. And the same thing in the Israel Museum. They have it there, too. But I want to read to you the inscription. This is just really fun stuff. And I, I want to We'll end here, but this is really interesting. So Hezekiah had this tunnel made, and he did it for the purpose of preserving a water supply for the people when Assyria came the second time. And notice this. The passage reads this. The tunnel... And this is the story of the tunnel, while wow. the pickaxes were each against each other, and while three cubits were left to cut, the voice of a man called to his counterpoint, counterpart. For there was Zada, whatever that is, in the rock, on the right. And on the day of the tunnel being finished, the stonecutter struck each man towards his counterpart, axe against axe, and then water began to flow from the source of the pool for two, 1,200 cubits. And, um, and 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 cubits and was the height uh, the height over their heads was another hundred of of the when the stone cutters were cutting and so the idea is they they started at different ends and they probably used soundings or whatever and they just started chiseling and they started chiseling and then they're listening and they're chiseling and they're listening for the other people down there and they're listening and they're following and pretty soon. They hit through, and you can you you see it. You can almost see a movie, can't in your head. They they pick the axe through, and all of a sudden a piece chunks out, and there's the other guy on the other side, and and then the water starts to flow, you know. And that's how it all happened, and it's there today. You can walk through it. Did you guys walk through this time? Yeah, you can walk through it. It's amazing. What's that? It is cold. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you don't want to do that unless you really uh, are serious. But a very interesting thing. But notice. Verse 21, so Hezekiah rested with his fathers. And then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. And so be encouraged by Hezekiah because he was a good man, but he wasn't a perfect man. He made his mistakes. And did you notice that God, knowing all things about Hezekiah, he didn't upbraid him. He didn't speak ill of him. I mean, whether the sickness that he had had anything to do with the things that he was doing, nobody really knows, I guess. But there was a point in his reign where things were going really well, and it started to go to his head a little bit. But God had a way of humbling him, and he did. And see, there's the difference. What is the difference between a man like David and a man like Saul? Well, David, when he was caught in his sin, he broke like an egg. And he repented of his sin, and he was never the same again. Meaning, he never did that again. He, it happened, he was broken, he was never the same man again. And the Lord had his way with David, and he was a, a man after God's own heart. And God knew that about David, and that's why God loved David so much. Hezekiah was very similar to that. When the pressure came on and he realized he got a little too big for his britches, that he did a few wrong things, he wasn't an idolater, though. He was a a man who loved God with all of his heart. And he had some issues. And you notice that God doesn't say, you know, there was no king like him before him or after him, except for the few things that he did. Let me itemize those just for for the paparazzi to write down. No, he doesn't say any of that. He just says simply, this man is a wonderful man. Aren't you glad you serve a God like that? And when he looks on you tonight, that's his heart for you. And why? Because there has been an advocate already that has gone to pay your price of your sin and my sin. That ought to encourage you. I hope it does. Let it encourage you, saints, because your sins have been forgiven. If you're a believer in Christ, and then all we have to do is confess. Confess our sins before him daily, and know that the blood of Christ covers those sins, and like I, like Hezekiah said, he'll never look upon them again. He throws them behind his back. He chooses to never look at them again. Why? Because of the merit of Christ. Not even for our sake does he do this, but he does it for Christ's sake. I like that. It takes the pressure off me because I know my performance is not so great. Do you follow? Can anybody say amen to that? Amen, yeah. What a great God we serve. Huh? So next week we'll get into Manasseh and unfortunately it's going to be a, an abyss because we were just on this high roller coaster of this wonderful man. Now it's going to go, meow. but keep your chin up because right after him comes another really great man, Josiah. And he's going to lift it right up to the stars again and then the abyss happens and they never recover. And that's the sad part. See, that's why it's good to focus on Christ. Don't even focus on your, the negative things, your sins. Don't think about them too much. Repent of them, turn from them, and don't think about them again. Better to think about Christ rather than your failures, right? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, again, to just be in your word. And Lord, we thank you for Hezekiah and his example and we thank you, Lord, that even you recorded by your spirit these, uh, a few chinks in his armor. But Lord, we all have chinks in our armor. We have little wrinkles we, in, in our armor. We have little holes in our shields. And Lord, we pray that you would cover us in the blood of Christ and just help us to be always encouraged and, and never to be, um, uh, don't let the enemy condemn us, Lord. And don't let our own hearts condemn us either, Father. So. Have your way with us tonight, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.